Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew 21, first 17 verses. We are now finished with Jesus' preliminary ministries in Galilee and down in Jerusalem. And now he is leaving Jericho right northeast of Jerusalem. And he's going into Jerusalem in carrying out the so-called triumphal entry. Verse 1, when they, that means Jesus and his disciples and all the many crowds that were following him, all excited about their approaching messianic kingdom, they thought, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Bethpage is a town which has been lost now. It means house of figs. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere. And in the New Testament, it's only mentioned in connection with the triumphal entry here. So we're not really sure where it is. It's probably near Bethany somewhere on the Mount of Olives. And you could look from there and see the whole valley, the whole side of the Mount of Olives, the whole valley. And I've actually stood there. And, you can, and it's true. You can see all of Jerusalem. You can see the walls of Jerusalem. You can see a long, 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 the Kidron Valley on the east side of the of the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And you got a pretty good view there, and that's where they were. They came to Bethpage. Jesus then sent two disciples, unknown disciples. We don't know from the synoptics who they were. Jesus then sent two of these disciples, telling them, go into the village ahead of you. And that's probably the village that, just, that Matthew just mentioned, Bethpage, although some people, John Gill says it's Bethany. Doesn't matter. It's probably Beth Page. Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Now the two synoptic pas- parallel passages here don't mention the donkey. They just mention the colt because that's what Jesus ended up ended up riding on and was more important. Untie them, untie the donkey and the colt, and bring them to me. And that is what Jesus tells his two disciples. Now, let's look at the synoptic parallels here. When they approached Jerusalem, this is in Mark 11, verses 1 through 6, at Bethpage in Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there. About the same as in Matthew, except no mention of the, the, the mention of the young, young, Mark mentions the young donkey, but the old donkey, the mama donkey, is not mentioned, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So here we see the extra little fact here that Jesus tells them to say, the Lord needs this donkey, and he's going to send it back right away. So you don't have to worry about being accused of stealing the donkey. So they went and found a young donkey outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the donkey? Because it looks like they were stealing the donkey. They answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. Jesus had said, Tell them the Lord needs the donkey. The Lord needs the donkey. Now when when somebody hears the Lord, this is not a polite address. Now, Now we're talking Messiah. Jesus' reputation was everywhere. I'm sure the people in Bethlehem knew exactly who the Lord was, that he was Jesus, and that Jesus was doing all these miracles, and he's coming in a triumphal procession, and they would be glad to let Jesus use their donkey. Oh, yeah, the Messiah's going to ride on my donkey? Yeah, go ahead. Let him, let him, you, you guys can have the donkey. Get out of here. Luke 19, verse 29 through 35 is another parallel passage. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. That's the colt. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this, The Lord needs it. 
Again, that's to protect the disciples from being accused of stealing. If that had happened, they wouldn't have been able to get the donkey because the owner of the donkey would have stopped the disciples from taking the donkey. So those who were sent, the two disciples, left and found it just as he, Jesus, had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. Now we have another little extra detail in Luke 19 is that the disciples threw their robes on the donkey. And and we'll see in Matthew they actually threw their robes on both of the donkeys. And the reason for this is because that's what you did for kings. You you put carpets under them. We'll see that in a minute. Now we look at the fourth parallel. This is not in the Synoptic Gospels, but in John. John 12, verses 14 through 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. All the how he got the donkey is omitted by John. And then... John says, Fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quote of two Old Testament passages, which we'll look at in just a minute. So there's the overall picture with all the synoptic gospels. Now, one of the, well, one problem that John Gill sees in this passage in Matthew is the fact that it fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, and it looks like that Jesus that Zechariah says that there are two coats that Jesus needs to ride on. Let's read that. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Gil says that, see there, it says he's riding on two, two donkeys, the big donkey and the little donkey. He harmonizes that by saying he rode on one donkey first, then on the other. I don't believe that. In a million years. It's just the way Zechariah puts it. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, comma, here's a noun in apposition, on a colt. That's like saying the United States Senator, comma, Lindsey Graham, comma, gave a speech. And then we say, oh, see, there's two people that gave a speech, the United States Senator and Lindsey Graham. Well, that's crazy. It's just a noun in apposition. All right, so here we have Jesus. He's going to ride on the little coat, the, the, the little coat, not the mama. Why, you might ask, did the disciples need to take two Because you don't take a young colt away from his mama. Because the mama will raise Cain and kick up a fuss. The colt's probably not going to want to go. But if you lead them both off, there's not a hassle, not a problem. They both go off docilely. Now, what does this young colt symbolize? Now, this is almost universal. It seems to me that people say this. I'm going to tell you right now, I think there's a problem. My NIV study Bible says the young colt symbolized humility. Because, after all, you know, a king riding on an ass, that does sound pretty humble to our eyes. But think about this. John Gill points this out. Back in those ancient times, there were no horses. In fact, they had been forbidden in Solomon's time in the law. And so... Ancient governors, this is John Gill saying, let me just quote what he says, their ancient governors, patriarchs, princes, and judges used to ride on asses before the introduction and multiplication of horses in Solomon's time. And when, of course, Solomon brought the horses in, they were forbidden by the law of God. So, therefore, wherefore, though this might seem mean and despicable at this present time to ride on an ass, yet it was suitable enough to Christ's character as a king and as the son of David and king of Israel, strictly observing the law given to the kings of Israel and riding in such manner as they formerly did. In other words, Jesus is obeying the law 
and he's riding as a king the way kings used to ride on asses. I mean, we don't ride on asses. We ride on we don't ride on donkeys. We ride on horses, but they did. So it could be that this coat is symbolizing the kingship of Jesus. It's an interesting thought that John Gill brings up there. So I don't know who's right about that. Now, when Jesus told his disciples to say, untie that donkey, oh, excuse me, when Jesus told his disciples to untie the donkey, he knew that the owner would part with the animals. Did he know it from his divine omniscience, or did he use human reason? Did he know that the owner would be glad to give his animals to the Messiah? Those are those nice theological questions which there's no way of actually knowing. I prefer to think that he acted as a human, and then if you see something where he could not have humanly done it, you assume he acted it from his divinity. So I think he just figured out that this man is going to want to give his donkeys for the Messiah, and so he said, go, go get them. Now, when did this happen? This was a few days before the Passover. Passover is going to be Thursday night. Jesus is crucified on Friday. This is Sunday, by the way. This is Palm Sunday as we're marching up from Jericho into Jerusalem. So we're just, what, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, just a few days before Passover. Go to Matthew 21, verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them, and immediately he will send them. I already discussed that when I was looking at the synoptics there. This, of course, when the man heard that the Lord needs them, the Messiah, yes, you can have my, uh, you can have my donkeys, no problem. Immediately he will send them. And, of course, this as a matter of either of, of, as omniscience or for human foresight at any rate, that's exactly what happened. Somebody came up and said, what are you doing with the donkey? And the, the two disciples say the Lord needs them. And immediately, and immediately the owner of the donkey will send the donkeys. Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you. I quoted that from the John Parallel. Tell daughter Zion, or daughter of Zion as most translations have it. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In the Holman Christian Study Bible translation of Zechariah 9.9, it says humble and mounted on a donkey. And that might be where people get the idea that riding on a donkey shows that the Messiah is gentle and humble. And that's understandable. Now, this took place, this riding of the donkey, the triumphal entry was taken in order that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. That's referring to two scriptures. Isaiah 62:11 is the first. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. His reward is with him and his gifts accompany him. But the part that was quoted was, say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. Now the way Matthew quotes Isaiah here is tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you rather than your salvation is coming. But the idea is the same because the king is going to bring salvation. And then the last part of Matthew 24, verse 5, is a quotation from Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's your fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And it's very usual for Jews to quote scripture like this, a piece at a time. Grab a piece from here, grab a piece there, and work it to your ends. By the way, daughter Zion and daughter Jerusalem. Whenever you see daughter of a city or something, that means the population of a city. The inhabitant, daughter of Jerusalem is, are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now notice that these prophecies... Talk about a king coming who is humble and riding on a colt. That doesn't sound like the typical idea of the Messiah. 
a great Alexander the Great type of victorious general going around with a sword and chopping people's heads off and fomenting revolution and so forth. Maybe the Jews did not read their scriptures closely enough. Maybe they did not understand the nature of the Messiah because they didn't understand what Zechariah said here. Matthew 21, verses 6 through 7. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. They laid their robes on the, do on the mama donkey and the baby donkey, the colt, on them. That's what the them is, both colts. Now, there's a question here is why would they put the robes on both colts if Jesus is only going to ride on, excuse me, why would they put the robes on both donkeys if Jesus is only going to ride on the little donkey? I don't know. My speculation is that they didn't know which one Jesus was going to ride on, so they put robes on both of them just in case. I didn't see anything in my commentators. They didn't make a comment on that, so I'll just speculate that way. There's another possibility is that, well, actually, Adam Clark does speculate in a way I don't think is reasonable. Well, he says that, does it mean that Jesus rode on the donkey first and then on the colt? Clark says, we can scarcely suppose that he rode upon both by turns. This would appear childish. And, of course, that he rode upon both at once, that would be absurd. So he just rode on the colt, and they had robes on both of them because they didn't know which one Jesus was going to use. That's in my opinion. And, of course, why did Matthew mention the donkeys? I said early, because a colt's not going to go anywhere without his mama. mama. And when you take the colt off, the mama's going to kick up a fuss, start cause it a big rumpus. So they had to take both. Now, the disciples were very humble here. They did exactly like Jesus said. They could very well have been accused of theft. I mean, think about it, going up into somebody's yard and carrying off the lawnmower or something. Oh, the pastor has need of it. You know, that's not going to go over too good with most owners. But they trusted Jesus that he knew what he was talking about. Now, they put robes on the big donkey and the little donkey. And when you put robes under someone, you are acknowledging him to be king. This is according to John Gill in my NIV study Bible. Here's a quote from 2 Kings 9.13. Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So that's how they proclaimed Jehu is king. They blew some trumpets and put garments, put, put their garments on the steps so that Jehu could walk on them. Matthew 21 verse 8. And the point of that is, is that that's how you show that somebody is a king, by putting garments under the king. And that's what the disciples were doing. They were looking at Jesus as the king. Matthew 21, verse 8, a very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Same idea. The crowd is acknowledging Jesus as king by putting their robes under him, under the donkey. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. One of my commentators speculated that the branches were on the side of the road, because if you put the branches in the middle, that would impede the progress of Jesus and his disciples, Jesus walking on that donkey, and that's, I think that's probably so. They probably put the branches on the side, and they probably put the robes in the middle because the donkeys could, could walk on the robes. Now, who were these crowds? Remember, there was a large crowd that was coming from Jericho. They were the ones that had followed Jesus from Galilee, and also maybe some more he had picked up in his Perean ministry across the Jordan River. Maybe he got some southerners uh, down there uh, walking with him. And then also there were people who came out of Jerusalem and met him on the way. Met him halfway, going in the opposite direction from Jerusalem up northeast towards Jericho where Jesus was coming from. And remember the crowds were swollen in Jerusalem because of the Passover feast. So Jesus has gathered a bodaciously large crowd around him. Cutting down branches and laying robes. We said the robes show kingship. What about the branches? The Jews did that on any occasion of joy. 
They, of course, most famously did it at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, but they did it at Passover too, and this is which they did now. John, the parallel passage, tells us that these branches were of palm trees, and that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the Lord is the Blessed One, the King of Israel. The palm trees probably came from Jericho because palm trees aren't native to Jerusalem, according to my NIV study Bible. Branches was an emblem, a symbol of success and victory. We can see this in First and Second Maccabees. People waved palm branches to show victory. And in fact, we can see it in the scriptures, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is John looking in his vision, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. So the overcoming victorious saints had palm branches in their hands. So palm branches were a symbol of victory. Matthew 21, verse 9. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowds who went ahead of him, they could have been the ones coming from Jerusalem, according to John Gill. Could be. It could be just the crowds just wherever they came from just kind of went around him. And so some were in front and some were in back. Those who followed him. So this shows that Jesus was surrounded some people speculate that the crowds that are following Jesus are the ones that came out of Jericho with him. doesn't matter. The point is that he was surrounded by people shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And remember, Son of David is a messianic title. Hosanna to the Messiah. And can you imagine how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to think about that when that noise gets to Jerusalem? What does the word Hosanna mean? It's a Hebrew expression meaning save. It became an explanation. It became an expression of praise. And in my NIV study Bible says that it has an idea of both prayer and praise. So, praise be to the Messiah, or save us, Messiah. Save us, King of the Jews. Praise to the King of the Jews. Praise to the Messiah. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Blessed, if it refers to people, means happy. But if it refers to God, it also means happy. So, <laughs> He who comes in the name of the Lord, of course, is Jesus. He's the Messiah, and he is the happy one. He's the blessed one. And, of course, they're thinking that the Messiah is going to be blessed because he's going to be ruling. They, of course, no, know nothing about his crucifixion. They don't understand that he's going to be nailed to the cross in less than a week. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Here's some Old Testament language that sounds like this. Psalms 148, verses 1 through 2. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. In other words, praise him from way up in the air. Praise him, all the angels. The angels live in heaven. Praise him, all his host, his angelic host. Luke 2.14, this is the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. I think the regular heaven is sky, and you get the highest heaven. That's the heavenly abode where God and his angels and, and the saints live. Psalms 118, verses 25 through 26. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. So the people are using scriptural language here to praise Jesus. Matthew 21, verse 10. When he, that's Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, Who is this? Well, now they knew who he was. He had preached there before in his Jerusalem ministry early, most of which is in the book of John. We haven't talked about it too much in Matthew, of course, but he had preached down there. He had done miracles all over the place. 
He had done miracles in Jerusalem. They knew who he was, but they hadn't seen him riding on a donkey and claiming to be king with a whole bunch of crowds waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the king. No, they weren't used to that. They were they were used to a rabbi teaching, doing some miracles, but basically, you know, he was a lowly carpenter doing all this stuff. Now he's revealing himself as the king. And the whole city was shook up. The whole city was shaken, it says. You can imagine what those Pharisees and Sadducees thought. They said, man, we thought we had a problem before. We've been watching Jesus for three years now, and he's been making fools out of us. We can't answer him. We're scared to death of him. And now it's revolution time. He's going to cut our throats, and the crowd is going to kick us out of power, and they're going to establish him as king. That's exactly what they were thinking, and they were scared to death. Matthew 21, verse 11, and the crowds kept saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, when Jews say the prophet, they're referring to a very famous verse in Deuteronomy 18:15, quoting Moses, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brethren. You must listen to him. So the prophet, the prophet is basically the same thing as 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah, the one who's going to inherit the kingdom. Now, notice the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, 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 and they were jubilant. But in five days, some of them would be shouting, crucify him. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them. In other words, the going got tough for them, and they, they were disappointed in, their, in not seeing their conception of the Messianic kingdom fulfilled, and so they just turned it back on Jesus. It's quite tragic. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex, this is the court of the Gentiles, and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, there's a famous problem of harmonization because John in chapter 2 has a overturning of the tables at the beginning of his ministry, and this is at the very end, the last last week of his life. I don't have any problem with that. There were two cleansings. That's what the NIV study Bible says, and that's, I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Why is that so impossible? He goes in there and he throws over the tables. They get all shook up. They pick themselves up. They pick the money up. They pick, they collect their scattered animals, and they get right back at it after Jesus leaves. And so he does it again. These people are hard-hearted. They weren't going to learn. Why are they changing money in the temple? Well, they had a legitimate reason for being there, actually. It was to make change for people to pay the one-half shekel temple tax. They had to pay it in shekels. And, of course, everybody back then with international trade and all had all kinds of different coins. And so they had to do some foreign exchange had to buy some foreign exchange they had to sell some foreign exchanges to say to buy some shekels and pay the temple tax in the jewish currency ezekiel 30 verse 13 says what the money was for it's the one half shekel temple tax exodus 30 verse 13 says everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel 20 jeras to the shekel this half shekel is a contribution to the lord and john gill says that that's this contribution, or this tax actually, was supposed to be temporary to take care of the tabernacle in the wilderness, but the Jews made it permanent. The Romans actually took it over from the Jews when the Romans started running Israel, and they, the, the Jews have been paying this half-shekel temple tax forever, half-shekel per person for a long, long time. Now, the money changes would make a profit on each transaction, which is perfectly legitimate, but why did Jesus get so angry at them and drive them out? Well, there are several options for that. Maybe it's because they were making their money too close to the temple. What they were doing was legitimate, but in the wrong place, and that could be. Maybe they were charging normal rates, but they were getting kind of commercial. It's just like, you know, like like that Todd Bentley at that 
revival down there in Lakeland, Florida, had ATMs in the parking lot so you could give money to him. I, you know, I can't think of anything immoral about an ATM, but my gosh, did that have the wrong atmospherics. Awful. It could be that, or it could be the money changers were charging too high fees for their service. This is what John Gill said, thinks. He says this, quote, Unlawful gain, avarice, and extortion of the priests and other officers of the temple who had a considerable share in these things. In other words, he's saying even the priest, even the official priest, were making money by doing this. And under the appearance of religion and devotion, they devoured widows' houses, plundered persons of their substance, and were full of extortion and excess. Jesus says, in fact, in verse 13, he calls them a den of thieves. So I that's probably what it is. It's not that they were in the wrong place doing the right thing in the wrong place. They were doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. Getting rich. Getting rich off religion. Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland? Are you listening, Creflo Dollar? Are you listening, Joel Osteen? I just did a blog post called Cabins in the Corner of Gloryland, and I've got four nice pictures of those four, four gentlemen, their houses, and they look bigger than the mansion I'm going to get in heaven. It's, and it's absurd. It causes stumbling block to the people of Christ, and it causes people in the world to cast reproach upon the church. So Jesus turned the table over. I bet if he was here, he'd light a match to some of those mansions I just mentioned. He'd get the people out. Then he'd say, it's going up in flames. All right, now, this overturning the money changer table, there's something interesting here. You look at the parallel passages in Mark, especially, in Mark, not just especially, but the one in Mark, verses 11 through 15, and you will see that this is not the overturning of the of the money changers table was not on Palm Sunday, the first Sunday that we've been talking about, that Jesus entered Jerusalem. It was on the next day, Monday. The NIV Study Bible says this. I checked several commentators, and there's no question. It was Monday. And we discover this by looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That was Sunday. He looked around, checked everything out, but he didn't get rambunctious until the next day. Verse 12, the next day, Mark says, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if he had any fruit. And so forth, the, the, parable, the, the story of cursing the fig tree. Then on f- verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So we see, the mark is very clear. It's on Tuesday. So the question is, uh, that was NIV Study Bible says that. I've just quoted you from Mark, Bible.org. I respect them very much for their scholarship. They said it was Monday also. I don't think there's any question it was Monday. So the next question is, is why did Matthew have it sounding, sounding like it was the first Sunday that Jesus arrived. Now, Matthew does conflate events a lot, and he's not so concerned about temporal transitions, which I, I, li- I like to know what happened when, but the New Testament writers didn't have a lot of that sometimes. And for some reason, he he put what happened on Tuesday, he put it in with all the events that happened on Monday. Maybe there's a, a literary reason why he did it, but if it is, I don't know what it is. I can't see it. So I point that out to you for your further study. Now, the court of the Gentiles is where these money changes were working. That was on the outer court. You had the court of the Gentiles. If you were Gentile, you could go there. And the next court was the court of the women. If you were a Jew, you could go there, male or female. Then the next inner court was the court of the women, uh, the court of the uh, men. 
which if you were a Jewish man, you could go in there. The idea, of course, is the further away from the temple, you, the closer you get to the temple, the more, uh, how can I say it, the more holy you were, the more separate you were, the harder it was to get there. The idea of getting close to God is very, very difficult. So they were in the court of the Gentiles selling these things. And I'm going to read you a quote where Jesus gets mad. It's in the next verse. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah 56, 7, where Isaiah says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles. And what were the Gentiles seeing here in the court of the Gentiles? They weren't seeing prayer. They were seeing commerce. So, so that's why Jesus was upset about that. They were abusing the purpose of God's temple. Why were they, were they selling doves, by the way? These money changers? It was not just money changers. There was also people selling doves. Well, doves were used in temple sacrifices. For example, in the purification of, of women. If a woman had just had a baby, she had to go to the temple and get purified, would go through a ceremony, and she had to offer a turtle dove for a sin offering. Leviticus 12:6. Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, we see that Jesus did the same. Th- Mary did the same thing. She offered a pair of turtle doves. So that's why. Also, if a leper was cleansed of a skin disease, they offered two turtle doves. If there was a man with a discharge, some kind of a, a seminal discharge or bloody discharge, two turtle doves to show cleansing. Same thing with a woman with some kind of a menstrual discharge or a vaginal discharge. Two turtle doves had to be offered. What if you were so poor you were supposed to offer an ox or a sheep and you couldn't afford the ox or the sheep? You offered two turtle doves. So they, and a lot of people were poor. You know, so there was, there was a big market for doves. Jesus turned the tables over. Verse tw- Chapter 21, verse 13. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. As I said earlier, that's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. Let's read that. I will bring them to my holy mountain. This is God speaking. I will bring them to my holy mountain, my God's holy mountain, and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. This is the temple. Of course, this temple is a type of the church of Jesus Christ, where all the Gentiles are going to be in the house of prayer into the, into the church of Jesus Christ. So let, they're going to rejoice. These Gentiles are going, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not only for the Jews who are bringing their sacrifices, but also for the Gentiles who have their sacrifice offered on the altar, who was Jesus Christ. Jesus says that they were a den of thieves. He's probably quoting Jeremiah 7:11. Has this house, Jeremiah says, which is called by my name, that's the temple, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. So Jeremiah called the temple a den of, rob- a den of robbers when the unspiritual people took it over. Probably used it for a tourist attraction or something. Who knows? People getting rich off of religion. It happens all the time. This is a great application here, what Jesus did about turning over the money changers' tables. Great application for the shriek it and keep it crowd, the blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, call it and haul it, Copelandhagenites. As you can tell, I ain't too happy with those guys. They're getting rich off the gospel and they're making a disgrace of the, of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not just those people that do it. I was in a 
in Lushan, China, at one of the biggest, it, the, well, it is the biggest Buddhist temple in China, and it was the second in the world. Somebody, some some pious Muslims destroyed number one, I think, after I'd been there. So it, this this Buddhist statue in Lushan, it's right, it's right on the edge of the water, and they have this huge Buddhist temple there, and five trillion tourists around there, and I'm banging around with the tourists, and I went into the temple, and I saw this Buddhist monk with his bald head and his saffron robe. He's sitting there. He's got a stack of RMB, uh, uh, renminbi, which is the Chinese currency, bills. He has a stack of 100 RMB notes, and he's just counting them as fast as he could. And I thought to myself, well, it's not just Christians, misguided, idiotic Christians who make people stumble with their money and who get rich off religion. Buddhists do it, too. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 15. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex. This, again, is in the court of the Gentiles on the outside. And he healed them when the chief priests and the scribes... We're back to Sunday now. This is on Sunday, Palm Sunday. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why were they indignant? Well, because they were shouting out a messianic term, son of David. That means even the kids knew that Jesus was Messiah. Now these marvelous people, these scribes, the chief priests and the scribes, they were upset with the children. They were indignant with the children. They didn't care that people had been healed. Can you imagine how happy those healed people were? They didn't give a rip about them. All they cared about was their power and their place and their position, and they knew that it was about to go. Actually, it turned out it didn't go to another 40 years, but it did go when the Romans came in and wiped the temple out and burned it to the ground, a fate which was well-deserved, by the way. Notice also these chief priests and scribes didn't care that the temple was cleansed. Jameson, Foss, and Brown point that out. Jesus was cleansing the temple from all the 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 money changers and sellers of the doves who were in the, who were getting rich off of the Jewish religion they should have been happy that the temple was cleansed but they weren't Matthew 21 verse 16 these scribes and Pharisees said to him do you hear what these children are saying yes Jesus told them have you never read you have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants Jesus didn't care that they were calling him Messiah he was happy they were calling him Messiah now, maybe these Pharisees, they might have wanted Jesus to rebuke the children for calling him the Messiah, or maybe they thought it was silly for the Messiah to receive praise from silly children. And they were saying, well, look at you. You claim to be a big shot Messiah, and you got to get your praise from kids? Well, Jesus has always had a scripture to answer them, just like he answered the devil in the wilderness with three scriptures, or two, two or three, I forgot how many scriptures. He answered the Pharisees here with a scripture, namely Psalms 8, verse 2. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. So the praise of kids is going to create a stronghold of fortress which is going to protect, going to protect Israel, and in this case, the, the Messiah. Now, it seems sort of nice that Jesus didn't quote the last part of the verse. Psalm 8, 2, the last part says, The praise of these children and nursing infants will silence the enemy and the avenger which, of course, would label the Pharisees as the enemies of God, which, of course, they were. Jesus didn't quote that. I don't know why. Matthew 21, verse 17. 
Then he, Jesus, left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Bethany, of course, is the home of Mary and Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and that's probably where he was staying, although not necessarily. Some people say it could be the home of Simon the leper, who also lived in Bethany. I assume it was Mary with Mary and Martha. This city, this little village, was on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, which is sort of on the other side of it from Jerusalem. It's about two miles away. Bethany means house, could mean house of obedience. It might be translated house of affliction, or it could be house of dates. Mount, Olives, Mount of Olives had dates and figs and olives everywhere. It's a very rich place. At any rate, Jesus left them, went out to Bethany, and spent the night there. That would be Sunday night. Monday morning is coming up next. Why do you think that Jesus spent the night outside of Jerusalem? Why didn't he just spend the night in Jerusalem? Well, if he'd have stayed there, can you? It was dangerous. The scribes and the Pharisees could have nailed him while he was sleeping. Also, by getting away from all the people who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king, he left that to take away all suspicion that he was trying to set up an earthly kingdom. He didn't want the, well, he didn't want people trying to set up an earthly kingdom and starting a revolution, which would have gotten the, the Romans down on him. That would have been a bloody mess. So he got out of town to stop mess, earthly messianic expectations from having their awful fulfillment. So he spends Sunday night in Bethany. We'll leave him there. We'll take up Monday morning when we go to verse 18 in our next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.